from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 7th. Today, lame duck executions, stimulus talks on Capitol Hill, and the people who could be evicted at the end of the month. We have to bring back the death penalty. They have to pay the ultimate price. They have to pay the ultimate price. They can't do this. They can't do this to our country. The Justice Department is scheduling several executions kind of in the couple months here we have before former Vice President Biden's, now President-elect Biden's inauguration. Joe Biden opposes the death penalty even for cops who, I mean, look, you have to see, even for these cop killers who go around, the predators, they murder children. This is drawing a lot of criticism from anti-death penalty advocates, civil liberty advocates who say that the attorney general, Bill Barr, is sort of trying to rush these executions through before a new administration comes in and might take a different posture towards the death penalty. I'm Matt Zapatosky. I'm a national security reporter who covers the Justice Department for The Post. And why are they trying to theoretically rush these executions through? I think the Justice Department would tell you that, look, they have consistently scheduled these executions since they revived the practice. Executions, federal executions, had kind of been on hold for 17 years. And Bill Barr came in and said, no, this is the law and we're going to do this. And he's pretty consistently throughout his time as attorney general scheduled them. And he's Mm. not stopping because of the transition. So this isn't a thing that presidents usually do before they leave office, like do a bunch of executions right at the last minute. In recent history, it's not something that the federal government has done at all, let alone during the transition. Before Bill Barr came in, it was 17 years before the federal government had executed anyone, period. Now, they had continued to seek death sentences in some cases, so it's not like they had given up the death penalty, but in practice, it was just never happening, period, let alone in, in during transitions. And if you go back even farther, it's very, very, very rare that someone would be executed in a transition. One of the notable things here, too, is that while a couple of these were scheduled before the election, Bill Barr actually scheduled three of them to happen during the presidential transition, and he put those on the schedule after the results of the election were clear. So those Hmm. are what are really sort of rankling the anti-death penalty civil liberties advocates. And what are some of the other ways that we've seen the Trump administration take a much more aggressive stance on federal executions? Well, uh, another thing that happened just very recently is the Justice Department changed this federal rule about how you can put someone to death. So previously, the Justice Department, the federal government would always use lethal injection. But the Justice Department published this rule in the Federal Register, which is set to take effect later this month, where they can use other methods in certain circumstances, Uh, you know, firing squads, electrocution, gas. It's sort of limited the places where they can use those. It has to be the law of the state would allow that too. But anti-death penalty advocates, civil liberties advocates say, boy, these methods are very cruel. And should we really be even putting them on the table for possible use? 
Again, why would the Trump administration even pursue that? I mean, it seems like if you already have the ability to execute people by lethal injection, which I think many people would say is the most humane or at least most usual way of doing it. Like, why is the Trump administration going out of its way to be able to kill people in different ways? So I would make two points on that. One is that even some in the anti-death penalty crowd say, look, killing someone is inhumane. You know, we can dress it up as lethal injection, but is that really fair? Like we're putting someone to death. Who cares about what the method is? But and I, I also think it's up for debate whether lethal injection is in fact the least cruel way of doing it. Right. W- what the Justice Department says is the impetus behind this rule change, though, is, is that they want to get in line with what states do. The law kind of asks the federal government to get in line with what states do. And some states allow inmates to choose how they be put to death, for example, or if lethal injection is unavailable or declared unconstitutional, they can go to some of these other methods. There has been a problem recently of the availability of lethal injection drugs. Mm. So some states have wanted to have a sort of menu of options to be able to use if lethal injection drugs aren't available. And the Justice Department here is coming in and saying, in those places, in those states that want that, we want that too. That it basically gives them more options that if for some reason they can't use lethal injection in one case, then they still have the ability to perform an execution in other ways. Yeah, correct. And in practice, we'll see how this plays out, right? So there are five executions on the schedule from now until the end of the administration. Four of those, they plan to use lethal injection, and they're just not saying what they plan to use in the fifth because there's sort of ongoing legal litigation about that case. It's possible that they have this option and never use it in their last five, and then the Biden administration could come in and do something different. We'll see. But right now, as of later this month, they will have that option available. And in terms of these executions that are scheduled for between now and January 20th, who are the people who are going to be executed? I mean, the Justice Department would say they are pretty violent criminals, right? You know, one person was convicted of killing seven people. Another person was convicted of killing his two-and-a-half-year-old kid um, after a paternity test showed that the kid was his. Uh, He took the kid along on his trucking route, got frustrated when his child kicked over a a training potty and bashed her into the window and dash of his car. You know, these are not nice people. Their attorneys say some of them suffer from mental illness. Some of them were very young when they committed their crimes. And it is important to note their cases have languished for years. None of these people are people who were sentenced in the last couple years. Generally, they were convicted more than a decade or even decades ago of of murder and other federal offenses. Hmm. What do you think is the message that the Trump administration is trying to send by doing these executions and also doing them in these last weeks, like making it a very clear and urgent priority? I mean, the Trump administration has been sort of pro-death penalty, right? They have cast themselves as the tough-on-crime administration, setting aside the death penalty. You know, the Obama administration, there was a great push towards criminal justice reform and even just using the powers of the Justice Department in 
they would be creative about how they would charge people so that they didn't trigger mandatory minimum sentences, so that they didn't hmm. sort of go back to the, the crackdown on crime of the 90s. The Trump administration has wanted to return to that. And I think the administration would explain it this way, right? They enforce the law as the law is written. They're going to execute people who have been sentenced to death if that's what it calls for. It seems like when it comes to the practice of the federal government executing people, we're really at this moment of seesawing, right? That President Trump ramped this up aggressively. The expectation is is that that's going to be very different under Joe Biden. But it does seem like we are still at this moment in this country where we really don't have any consensus at all when it comes to federal executions, when it comes to executions generally as a practice. And I wonder if that's a conversation that's going to become more urgent in coming years. Yeah, look, this is a tough, a tough, tough issue and a tough, tough question. And it's not one that's going to have a simple answer, even in the Biden administration. Um, President-elect Biden has voiced opposition to the death penalty, but he hasn't committed to commuting every, every death sentence and ending the Justice Department's use of it. We'll see what happens. He certainly could continue to schedule these. We'll see what happens when he's confronted with a very heinous crime in his administration, God forbid, a death penalty. Will his Justice Department seek the death sentence for for people? I mean, this issue, it's very pertinent right now because we have five people whose lives are literally on the line in the next two months. But it's not an issue that is going to go away or do an about face in the Biden administration. They're going to have to wrestle with these very tough questions. And they so far haven't really committed to anything on that front. Mad Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. So, Jeff, since this past summer, you and I have talked about so many proposed stimulus bills, all of which have failed so far. Now there is another stimulus bill on the table. What makes this one different? So for the last six, seven months, everyone in Congress, both parties have agreed that more aid for the American economy is necessary. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. We just don't have time to waste on. There is momentum. It could provide meaning relief for millions who are suffering economically, personally, health-wise. And one of the strangest things about being a reporter is that sometimes members of Congress will ask me, you know, hey, when is this coming? <laughs> and my reaction is often, I, you know, that's your job. You guys are the ones who are supposed to be coming up with, with legislation. And yet for most lawmakers, they really feel like this is being controlled by party leadership, McConnell, Pelosi, um, Schumer, McCarthy, and that they are driving the train. And so for most lawmakers for the last six, seven months, they have felt effectively powerless and just at the whim of whatever it is that Pelosi and McConnell essentially want to do. And that has been my understanding of the process, that it's basically Nancy Pelosi at the helm and like whatever she says goes, if she thinks that a potential deal isn't good enough and she doesn't want to do it, then it's not going to happen. That's right. I mean, except now, after months of people 
privately grumbling and saying, you know, I wish I wish Congress could do something about this, even when they're in Congress. They actually are. And we've seen over the last few weeks, I mean, we've heard rumors about this for months, but it finally became real last week when a group of moderate lawmaker centrists who had been talking sort of privately without the support of leadership came out with this $908 billion compromise framework. It's very, very light on details, but it at least sort of outlines where a compromise may lie and has really spurred a lot of momentum um, for the first time after months and months of gridlock and inaction. We're finally seeing some movement. And really, it's due to this this group of bipartisan lawmakers working quietly and, and really secretly for a long period of time. And who are these lawmakers, moderates, who have been working on this deal? You know, every time I describe this group in a story, I hear from one other Senate office that feels slighted for being left out of this cool group <laughs> now. Um, there's a lot of people who want credit for it now. But I think I feel comfortable saying that the ringleaders seem pretty clearly to be on the Democratic side, Senator Mark Warner uh, of Virginia and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and on the Republican side, um, sort of who you'd expect. Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who is a bit of a wild card there. So then rather than having the kind of entrenched leadership of each party, the the Nancy Pelosi, the Mitch McConnell hashing through this, you have these members of Congress and the Senate in the middle. But if this is their deal, what is the chance that this is actually going to get passed if it didn't come from the people who are ultimately in charge? I think that's a really tough question that we've been struggling to answer. Um, we reported, and I, I've been trying to you know, keep track and do a little whip count of exactly how many members of each side support this. So there was huge news last week when the Democratic leadership, not just rank and file, but Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi came out and said that they supported this framework for a deal, even though it leaves out a lot of Democratic priorities and has some things that Democrats don't want. So it seems like if Pelosi and Schumer are on board, that's a pretty good sign that most Democrats will get there. On the other side, I've counted about 10 to 12 Republican senators who say that they um, support this in theory, or at least the sort of the, the broad contours of the agreement. They haven't signed off on everything, but they like the direction of this of this compromise. And so the question increasingly looks like, is Mitch McConnell going to be willing to put this bill up or something like it up for a vote on the floor? And from the perspective of a lot of the Republicans I talked to, they sort of feel like Pelosi held out against a deal because she didn't want to give Trump a victory, regardless if, if mm. you think that's a legitimate attack. That's how a lot of Republicans feel. And some of the more conservative Republicans I talked to and some of the people on the Hill I talked to say, hey, why are we going to help Joe Biden when they wouldn't help Trump? And in terms of what we know so far from this stimulus bill that is now on the table, what are the ways in which, if it were passed, it actually would help Americans who are struggling right now? So the way I've been trying to describe the bill is that there are three central components in terms of you know the money it spends. One is about $200 billion for distressed businesses, another round of Paycheck Protection Program. This would be a, a new version of PPP in which money is much more directly tied to businesses having to prove they've undergone a, a sharp decline in revenue. So the idea is that this would you know continue to help those businesses, but it wouldn't be that kind of money that we saw before being given out to the NBA or to you know huge corporations that they're trying to really target small businesses with this help. 
that's what they say. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of controversy and understandably so about the PPP program. It's important to remember that, you know, at the time that it was being drafted and released, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of just sort of desire to just get the money out the door. But the the reverse side of that, the sort of the backside of that was that, you know, a lot of people who didn't deal with so- severe revenue declines got a chunk of federal money from everything I understand from the negotiations, that's very unlikely to be replicated this time. And we are seeing huge declines, especially in restaurants. I mean, restaurant workers are getting absolutely hammered and are expected to get absolutely hammered in the next few months. So this would hopefully provide some absolutely critical relief to them. The other two big parts of the bill, um, one is about $200 billion for state and local governments that have been hard hit by the pandemic and have laid off over a million workers already. Some researchers I've talked to think that that number could accelerate with another 500,000 workers being laid off in the next few months. And then the third bucket would be uh, money for the unemployed. We still have 20 million or so newly jobless Americans. They would be getting under this um, program a $300 a week additional federal benefit that might not sound like a lot, but $1,200 a month is, is a really big difference for a, a huge number of people, difference between being able to you know, afford food and, and groceries and, and rent and not being able to. So what is not in this stimulus bill? The big uh, elephant in the room is the fact that the stimulus checks, another round of $1,200 stimulus checks is not in the bill. This is a provision that... Um, has overwhelming support in the American public, according to polling. Democrats support it. The president supports it. Many Republican senators support it. The reason it's not in there is because Republicans want to keep the size of this bill under a trillion dollars. They've already started raising objections about deficit spending, and so they don't want the package to grow beyond that sort of arbitrary $1 trillion number. But when you add in Democrats' top demands for state and local money and unemployment money with Republicans' top demand for additional business money, you're already pretty close to 800, 900 billion, and the stimulus checks would take you over that trillion dollar number. So even though both parties support that concept in theory, it's not really at the top of either party's list, and therefore it's sort of fallen by the wayside. And the fact that what Pelosi seems ready to accept right now is in many ways less than what was on the table before, like are Democrats complaining about that? I would say the, the vast majority of Democrats I speak to are okay with the way Pelosi handled these negotiations. There's really only been a couple very almost fringe pockets of dissent of people who said that she should have taken the deal. And I think for a lot of them, they won't say this, but they'll sort of imply that this was a very close election. And if Pelosi had taken that deal in the fall, it's certainly possible that Trump could have won re-election. That said, you know, the odds of Democrats griping about this $908 billion proposal, I think we'll have to see. If Pelosi and Schumer really do back it, I think Democrats will be on board. I think just as importantly, if if President-elect Biden comes out and you know he's already done this to some extent and said, this is a good starting place, we should pass this, I think it'll be very hard for Democrats to resist it. We heard Senator Bernie Sanders came out last week and said, you know, this, provi- this bill needs to get rid of either the liability shield, this is another important provision in there that would basically immunize um, corporations and other entities from coronavirus-related lawsuits. Sanders said that that has to be out and that the bill has to um, 
be you know amended to include another round of $1,200 stimulus checks. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also told me that that's a, a key demand of hers, but it's not really clear you know, how widespread that sentiment is when the leaders of the Democratic Party feel that this is essential to sort of provide a floor under the economy before Biden takes office, because if they don't pass this, Biden could take office inheriting an absolute mess. And just to um, throw another little grenade into this already, steamy cauldron or whatever terrible metaphors I'm mixing here. Funding for the federal government is set to expire December 11th. So we could, you know, we're staring at the prospect of a government shutdown on top of all of this, you know, these aid programs that we've discussed that are going to expire, dozens of really, really critical things that Congress authorized just for the year that are about to expire. So in the very possible scenario that this bill does not, in fact, pass this week and we go into the holidays and there is still no federal aid um, or action on federal aid, what are the stakes for Americans? Like, how are things going to get worse for them? If nothing is done, the American economy is at a severe risk of backsliding. We've already seen hiring slow down dramatically to its lowest point really since the crisis first emerged. And not only that, but a number of programs that the federal government authorized in March are set to expire before the end of the year if nothing is done. Those include unemployment benefits for over 12 million American workers, um, various unemployment programs. They include uh, paid family leave benefits that tens of millions of American families are currently benefiting from. And it also includes a federal eviction moratorium that's set to expire and if not renewed would put 30 million people at risk of eviction. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. 17-year-old me was homeless and I found my way up out of that. You know, it's not possible to happen again. For months, state and federal eviction moratoriums have protected people who've been struggling to pay their rent. But many of those protections are set to expire at the end of the month. So my name is Tashika Booker. I'm 37, a single mom of one boy. His name is Sarai, and he is two years old, just turned two in August. And I live in Owings Run's apartment, which is a Westminster property. A lot of the people who live in Westminster management's buildings outside of Baltimore, uh, like Tashika Booker, are 
middle class, um, sometimes lower income people who are working as Uber drivers, they're working as healthcare aides, they're working as teachers. That's business reporter Jonathan O'Connell. And some of them have their jobs still and some of them don't, given the pandemic. I was working at a place called Pearson. They provide the textbooks to pretty much every school. She lost her job in May. Once COVID hit, childcare had to close down. Once that happened and I had to take him home with me, my manager started to say, like, you know, my work is slacking, that I need to be in an area that is less distracting. My son needs to be in a place where he can't be heard on meetings and things like that. And I totally understand that. But the thing is, is that if you guys know people lost their child care and I have a small child and this is my way of living, like exactly what do you expect for me to do? So she's on unemployment insurance, but it's not enough to cover her rent. Jonathan was reporting on the Westminster Apartment Company because it has ties to the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a White House official who was supposed to be helping Americans struggling to survive the pandemic. Look, President Trump is is making his decisions based on the science. He's been following the advice of his advisors. Um, He's focused on making sure that people, as few people as possible, lose their jobs and that the economic impact from this is as little as possible while also trying to save as many lives as possible. Westminster management is a unit of the Kushner companies, which is Jared Kushner's family company. They own more than 20,000 apartments, most of them kind of up and down the East Coast between New Jersey and Maryland. And there are certainly dozens of people who have had eviction notices filed against them during the pandemic by Westminster. It was by email. It was by phone. It was at my door. It was on my mailbox. And it just made me feel more anxiety. Like, No one wants to face eviction, but for me personally, every day I was breaking down. Like, I felt like I didn't really have a choice. The state of Maryland has a moratorium in place right now that has been extended a number of times. It prevents landlords from actually removing or courts from removing tenants from their apartments, but it does not prevent landlords from filing notices that are. And so those notices are now sort of piling up in local courts waiting for the eviction moratoriums to expire so that the landlords can can remove people. You know, there's a mix of different races living in Westminster apartments, but certainly, particularly in the Baltimore area, many of the residents are black. I really don't dive deep too much into, you know, owners of properties because it never really was a thing to me before. Um, it was just, you know, is this what I like? Is everyone friendly at the office? Is the community clean? So I never really knew anything about him, nor did I know about him having stake in this property until Washington Post reached out to me. There are still some protections right now that renters have. So the federal moratorium that's in place from the CDC, that's been in place since September 1st, and it's going to be in place at least through the end of the calendar year. And that allows tenants who have faced some sort of hardship as a result of the pandemic to file a, you know, file some paperwork in court saying, basically preventing the eviction from proceeding. So those protections are in place. You know, tenants have to know that they're available to them. And many of these tenants do not have, you know, legal expertise or access to lawyers. I mean, without some sort of federal intervention or funding of some kind, it's hard to see how a lot of those families could catch up to the rent that they've been missing. And it's hard to see how many landlords would really just kind of forgive rent that they were missing from tenants that were supposed to pay it. 
Westminster issued a statement through their lawyer saying that the company was fully compliant with state and federal eviction bans. But I think people take particularly issue with Westminster trying to evict people during the pandemic because that company is still owned by Jared Kushner. And Jared Kushner had a lot of responsibility for handling the pandemic. And yet here it's still ravaging the country and there are infections going up in many, many parts of the country and many people are still out of work because of it. But those protections are in place. It's just, a, you know, the question is what happens after December 31st. I still don't know. I know that right now I'm still about last month and this month behind and then obviously December, so three months. You can't let the world write your story. So I plan on still being here. I plan on doing whatever I have to do to make sure that myself and my son are not out in the streets. And I plan on still helping everyone else that I can help out. And I never thought that I would be in this position, but it's humbling. Jonathan O'Connell is a business reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 